and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. The theme of this season is nationalism, and in our mid-season review, oh so long ago, I discussed how modern nationalism was first expressed in the French Revolution, and I want to talk about that. But we run into the classic historian's conundrum. Backstory. To really understand the French Revolution, you have to understand late 18th century Enlightenment political thought, and to understand that, you have to understand the American Revolution. But the American Revolution didn't happen in a vacuum either. It was the direct result of the Seven Years' War, known to North Americans as the French and Indian War. And that war was a continuation of another war, the War of the Austrian Succession. In fact, the War of the Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War are basically the same war with a little break in between, much like World War I and World War II are basically the same war. And these wars have something else in common with the two world wars of the 20th century. There's conflict on multiple continents across both hemispheres. In a sense, the War of the Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War represent the First World War, where major powers sparred across the globe. We have the European colonial system to thank for this. During previous European wars, conflict was limited more or less to the European continent. Up until recently, the only major colonizers were the Spanish and the Portuguese, who had settled their colonial claims with the Treaty of Tordesillas. But by the middle of the 1700s, other European powers have stepped into the colonial game. By 1740, France has huge holdings in North America, including Louisiana, which spreads from the Gulf of Mexico to modern-day Canada, as well as French Canada along the St. Lawrence River. At the same time, Great Britain has built a number of colonies along the North American Atlantic coast. Both Britain and France have colonies in India, and all the major powers are struggling for control of some islands in the Caribbean. But world wars sometimes break out over unique black swan incidents. World War I began with a Serbian nationalist terrorist attack against the heir to the Austria-Hungarian throne, and the War of the Austrian Succession is similar. It breaks out because of a personal rivalry between two people, two relatively new rulers who, as fate would have it, take power in Europe within mere months of each other. These individuals are Frederick II of Prussia, better known as Frederick the Great, and Maria Theresa of Austria, the heir to Holy Roman Emperor Charles VI. Note the contrast here. At the end of the broad time period I'm talking about in the French Revolution, we'll be talking about big national movements made up of millions of people. 
But at the beginning, we're talking about a personal dynastic spat. This is a huge transition in politics, in how countries and people think about legitimacy. We're talking about the change from dynastic rule to popular rule, and it happens in the blink of an eye in historical terms. And when I say this is a change in how we see political legitimacy, what I mean is the ability as a ruler or a leader to claim that your authority is legitimate. Right? And let's not minimize this. A functioning society depends on 90% or more of its people uh, voluntarily obeying the law. Most people don't shoplift voluntarily. They don't have to be dragged away in cuffs. And if your government isn't seen as legitimate, fewer people are going to play by the rules. And if enough people stop playing by the rules, you hit a certain critical mass where your country falls into anarchy. And what happens in reality is the great majority of people turn to someone who they do see as legitimate to maintain some kind of order. Anyway, enough about political legitimacy. We'll talk about that more as we get to the various revolutions. And what we're starting out here with is a personal dispute between Maria Theresa of Austria and Frederick the Great of Prussia. So, before we get into the politics and the events, let's talk a little bit about these two key players. Frederick the Great is born in January of 1712. He is the son of Sophia Dorothea of Hanover, which makes him the nephew of King George II of Great Britain. But more to the point, he is now the heir to his grandfather, King Frederick I. Frederick I is the first king of Prussia, which is a brand new kingdom on the Baltic coast, in modern-day Poland, outside the borders of the Holy Roman Empire. A couple of generations before, this territory actually had been part of Poland, and in truth, when Frederick I crowned himself king on January 18, 1701, he was only king of this very small land, but he was also the Margrave of Brandenburg. Margrave is kind of like a duke, uh, and Brandenburg is a powerful statelet in the Holy Roman Empire, and it's one of the empire's handful of electors, major powers who get to vote for emperor. And if that's not enough, Frederick also holds title to a smattering of duchies and enclaves stretching from the Netherlands all the way to Russia. Now, this geographic position puts Frederick in an unenviable position. Frederick I rules a small territory that is smack in the middle of Europe, and none of it's really contiguous. So any time there is a war, even if Prussia or Brandenburg isn't involved at first, they have so many neighbors that it's easy to get sucked in. And 
Frederick I has responded to this by building a strong martial regime with a large core of professional soldiers who are drilled in the latest techniques and armed with the latest weapons. This has come at a cultural cost for Prussia and Brandenburg, while many of the other German statelets in this period are investing heavily in fancy palaces and opera houses and things like that, Prussia is spending a lot of money on their military, and this calls for a military leadership. But as the young Frederick II, the soon-to-be, one-day-to-be Frederick the Great, well, as he grows up, it seems like his personality is ill-suited for this kind of military role. Instead of the military, he prefers artistic pursuits. He has to constantly be forced to stop practicing playing his flute and go practice his horsemanship. This causes him to butt heads with his father, Frederick Wilhelm I, who is an extremely military-minded man who disdains the arts. Frederick Wilhelm also rules as an autocrat. When Frederick I dies in 1713, he immediately dismisses all of his father's ministers, famously declaring, Gentlemen, our good master is dead. The new king bids you all go to hell. Throughout his youth, young Frederick II gets to spend much of his time in other European cities. The cities of Prussia at this time, as I said, have little in the way of art or culture, at least in comparison to the rest of Germany. In Dresden, for example, Frederick II attends his first opera and his first concert, and it's expected from a young age that he's to be married off to one of his distant cousins in Great Britain. During Frederick Wilhelm's reign, he is initially intending to forge an alliance with the British, after all, he is married into the British royal clan. Why not take advantage of that? And this is the reason Frederick II is supposed to be married to a British noblewoman. But the Austrians, the overlords of the Holy Roman Empire, well, they don't want the British gaining influence inside the Holy Roman Empire. So they bribe both of Frederick Wilhelm's top advisors to spread rumors about the British. So Frederick Wilhelm ultimately pulls out of the idea of an alliance. This upsets the young Frederick II, who had been hoping to spend a few years abroad after his marriage, enjoying the broader European culture and maybe even bringing some of that back to Prussia. Speaking of marriages... The Prussian heir is also having some issues with his sexuality. Now, I don't want to oversell this because there's a lot of revisionist pop history out there saying that Frederick the Great was gay, and he wasn't. He had multiple confirmed female mistresses. It would be more accurate to say that young Frederick bats from both sides of the plate— and at the time Frederick Wilhelm calls off his marriage to the English noblewoman, the year 1730, he's entangled with a military officer named Hans Hermann von Katte. He, Katte, and a few other officers plan to flee to England, but 
one of the officers betrays them to Frederick Wilhelm, who brings them all up on charges of treason for attempting to defect to a foreign power while on active military duty. Frederick Wilhelm even threatens the young Frederick II himself with execution. Now, this isn't just about a young man feeling his oats and trying to go his own way. Frederick Wilhelm's wife, Sophia Dorothea of Hanover, is closely linked with the British royal family, right? And now, because of his advisors, Frederick Wilhelm is paranoid of the British, and uh, he learns that his wife has helped to hide some of the officers' correspondence while they were making their plans to escape. So suddenly, Frederick Wilhelm now fears that his own wife is colluding with rebellious officers to deliver his son to the British and use the young Frederick to control Prussian foreign policy. This doesn't seem to actually have been the case, but Frederick Wilhelm is concerned about it and he decides to be harsh. Not only does he have some conspirators executed, but he forces Frederick to watch the execution of von Kata with his own eyes. In his book, Frederick the Great, A Life in Deeds and Letters, British historian Giles McDonough writes, quote, The king had made it clear that Frederick must watch the execution of his friend, a practice that was thought savage even at the time. Years later... Frederick recounted the scene. That hateful citadel. No one spoke to me, dared speak to me. They left me alone with my sad reflections on my friend Kata. An old officer had come to him in tears. Oh, my prince, poor prince, he said. Frederick thought he had come to take him off to the scaffold. So speak, must I die then? No, my poor prince, no. You will not die, but you must allow the grenadier to take you to the window and keep you there. The soldier was to hold his head to make sure he missed nothing. Lapel reported the brief exchange of words that took place as the officer was led past Frederick's window to the block. I beg of you, a thousand apologies, cried Frederick. Monsieur, you owe me nothing, replied Kata. The gendarme and Frankman then cried, Lord Jesus, receive my soul. It was the signal for the executioner Koblenz to wield his sword. Kata's head fell with one stroke. Frederick promptly fainted. The body was left as instructed by the king, but someone had the decency to throw a black cloth over the bloody corpse. Frederick was distraught for days. He could neither eat nor sleep. The king has taken Kata from me, he told Lapel, but I still see him standing before my eyes. There was still a chance that Frederick would also be executed. Wilhelmina claims that Colonel Shank told him as much, that he had refused twice to take on the job, but that the king had insisted. May it please God that the king has a change of heart, that I may have the satisfaction of announcing your pardon, Shank is supposed to have told the prince. Kata's death, however, 
announced a slight lightening of the regime in Kustrin, and a minor rehabilitation for Frederick. Frederick Wilhelm had assuaged his bloodlust. That, and the problems which might beset the succession, convinced him to spare Frederick, rather than the plea for mitigation that he had received from the emperor in Vienna on the 1st of November. Unquote. As you might imagine, there is little love lost between father and son at this point. When Frederick Wilhelm dies on May 31, 1740, Frederick II takes the throne with every intention of shaping Prussian policy according to his own intentions, not his father's. See, Frederick Wilhelm had continued improving his own father's strong, disciplined army into the best fighting force in the world on a man-for-man basis. And like Philip of Macedon, he has left this army to his son. But Prussia remains small, and Frederick Wilhelm has pursued a policy of diplomacy to expand his lands, while using the army as a deterrent. With his passing... Frederick II aims to take a more aggressive approach and awaits his first opportunity. That opportunity arrives just a few months later, in October of 1740, thanks to the most consequential case of accidental poisoning in history. That month... Holy Roman Emperor Charles VI is out hunting on one of his estates in Hungary. After spending a cold, rainy day outdoors, he comes down with a cold, and following the old maxim, feed a cold, starve a fever, the emperor asks his chef to make him an enormous dinner. As part of the dinner, the chef prepares one of Charles's favorite dishes— a platter of mushrooms sautéed in oil. Unfortunately, whoever's job it is to identify the mushrooms does a lousy job, and instead of the edible Amanita mushrooms that are considered a delicacy, the chef accidentally serves Charles a platter of all-too-similar-looking Amanita feliotes mushrooms. These are better known as death caps. By October 20th, 1740, Charles VI, Holy Roman Emperor and Lord of all the Habsburg lands, is dead. This brings us to the second major character in our drama, Maria Theresa, Charles's heir and the new Archduchess of Austria. Unfortunately for her, Austria is just one part of the Habsburg lands, the Habsburg territories are a lot like Prussia's in that they're still based on old feudal land holdings, so they're scattered in bits and pieces across the southern half of the Holy Roman Empire. Most of Austria's great strength comes from the fact that Austria itself is large and wealthy and that the Habsburg rulers have long ruled over neighboring Bohemia and Hungary, which themselves are large, powerful entities. Anyway, not all of these lands' inheritance laws allow for a female ruler. Hungary is a good example. 
1741, Maria Theresa has to go to Hungary and personally plead her case. And the nobles ultimately accept her as ruler on a technicality. See, while it is established Hungarian law that the only ruler of Hungary can be a king, there's nothing in the law that says the king has to be a man, so they crown Maria Theresa king of Hungary. Along the same lines, while the Holy Roman Empire has been under Habsburg rules for centuries, that is not written in stone. Any male nobleman could theoretically be elected, but never in the history of the empire has there been an empress. All of these things are going to cause trouble for Maria Theresa and by extension for the rest of the world. Maria Theresa is only 23 years old when she takes power, five years younger than Frederick the Great. She inherits a country that's theoretically much larger and more powerful than Prussia, but that has a lot of hidden weaknesses. And for one thing, the army is a shell of what it should be. On paper, the Austrians still field the largest army in the empire by far, but their troops are poorly trained, and shortages in funding ensure that much of the army is on extended leave at any given time. Austria is a cultural power, and the Habsburgs have built their empire through centuries of marriage and diplomacy. Not long ago, they had actually ruled two empires, the Austrian and the Spanish, through two different branches of the family. But a generation before, the Spanish branch of the Habsburg family died out, and in the following war of the Spanish succession, a Bourbon king took power, giving the Bourbon dynasty control of both France and Spain, two of Europe's largest colonial powers. This has substantially weakened the Habsburgs, and also they have just fought a disastrous war against the Ottoman Empire, where they had to give up some lands just a few years before Maria Theresa comes to the throne. And tied in with this inherent Austrian military weakness, at least compared to how you would think an empire of this size would perform, compared with that sort of structural weakness, is the fact that Maria Theresa herself has not been raised with any kind of military education. She has been raised purely as a cultural ruler. Charles VI seems to have been wearing cultural blinders during her education. On the one hand, it's clear that he understood that she would be inheriting his lands and has planned for this. As early as 1713, four years before Maria Theresa's birth, Charles was already without a male heir but had two nieces, so he promulgated a law called the Pragmatic Sanction, allowing for females to inherit Habsburg lands in the absence of a male heir. Charles has even spent much of his time and political capital negotiating with neighboring powers to get them to agree to the sanction. 
for what it's worth. Few of those agreements would be worth the paper they were printed on as soon as Charles died. But anyway, since Maria Theresa's birth, she has always been the heir apparent, but she has only received part of the education that a European monarch needs at this time. To be fair, she has received the education necessary to be a high-ranking noblewoman. She knows the ins and outs of court etiquette, and she reads and speaks fluent French, which is essential for diplomacy. She spent many nights at the opera, and is without a doubt one of the most cultured women in the world. Unfortunately, while Maria Theresa has all the necessary skills to be a great diplomat, she's undereducated in other areas. These are areas where uh, typically uh, men were educated and women were not at this time. For example, most Europeans at this time aren't taught geography, not even most European men. Uh, geography is only really taught to men in the nobility. In other words, uh, the military leaders and the diplomats who are going to have to e negotiate exchanges of territory and things like that. A woman would have no need of geography, or so the thinking goes, so... Despite being the heir apparent, Maria Theresa comes to the throne with no knowledge of what her realm looks like on a map, or where the neighbors are, or which powerful countries are located where. When she's conferring with her generals, she constantly needs to have maps brought in and have people explain to her where major allied and enemy states are located. Maria Theresa has a long reign, and she's famous for the major reforms she makes later on. For example, she's famous for establishing one of the earliest health and safety regulatory regimes in the world. Things like banning pharmacies from selling... Uh, formulated cyanide over the counter, things like that. Uh, Maria Theresa will go on to make those kinds of advancements in her country, but when she comes to the throne, she faces a steep learning curve, particularly when it comes to foreign relations. Early on, despite her always having been the heir apparent, Charles VI seems never to have realized that his daughter might need to learn a little bit more about her future realm. Charles makes a habit of bringing Maria Theresa to meetings with his senior advisors, even from a young age. But he's never bothered to talk to her outside of those meetings and explain to her what's going on and the policies that are being discussed and the parts of the government that are involved. So, while she comes to power as someone who's familiar with a lot of her advisors' faces, she doesn't know which advisors are responsible for what, and it makes it hard to get her house in order, at least early on. One more thing to know about Maria Theresa, and it's important, is that she is also married. As a young woman, her father considered several suitors. As a matter of fact, he at one point considers the young Frederick the Great, who he ultimately rejects because of Frederick's Protestant faith. 
In retrospect, a lot of bloodshed could have been avoided had Maria Theresa and Frederick the Great gotten married. Instead, she's married to Francis, the Grand Duke of Tuscany, in 1737. And she is almost constantly pregnant for the next 19 years, from the age of 20 to 39, which includes the first 16 years of her reign. During her marriage, she has 16 children, many of whom will become very powerful in their own right. When we talk about the French Revolution, we'll be talking a lot about Marie Antoinette. Well, that's one of these daughters. But being pregnant all the time makes it harder for her to travel around her lands, particularly in time of war. This is the 1700s, and even in a fairly developed part of the world, it's not like you can fly somewhere first class. You're going over road by a carriage, and it's going to be a little bit rugged. So her mobility is limited, uh, at least most of the time early in her reign, and her marriage is an unhappy one. While she seems to genuinely be in love with Francis early on in the relationship, he is a notorious philanderer, and Maria Theresa eventually accepts a loveless marriage. It's not all bad, though. As we'll see, Maria Theresa will eventually use her husband as a puppet to control much of the empire, while still making all the important decisions herself. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Returning to October of 1740 and Charles VI's death, Frederick the Great immediately sees an opportunity when Maria Theresa comes to power. Prussia is a strong state, and while Austria is stronger on paper, it is weakened right now. With the emperor's untimely death and the rise of a female heir, there's an opportunity to stake a claim to additional territory. But there's also an element of time involved. Other powerful rulers are also eyeing bits of Habsburg land from the moment Charles VI assumes room temperature. So, if Frederick is going to act... He needs to act now. One of those other powerful rulers is Augustus III, King of Poland, Grand Duke of Lithuania, and Elector of Saxony, a powerful East German state. Augustus is eyeing the territory of Silesia in east-central Germany. This will link up his lands in Poland and Lithuania with his territory in Saxony but it will also partially encircle Frederick's territory in Brandenburg. Moreover, Frederick's main territories of Brandenburg and Prussia proper are already separated by Augustus's lands. The last thing he wants is for Augustus to gain more territory along his borders. Now, Maria Theresa isn't trying to change the old imperial practice of keeping a male emperor that would be too heavy of a lift. Instead, she puts forth her husband, Francis, as a candidate, intending to use him as a puppet. 
But Francis is not a Habsburg. He's just married to one. He lacks the political legitimacy of a real Habsburg candidate and Charles Albert of Bavaria, a large southern German state, contests his claim and puts his own name forward for emperor. Since Charles Albert is one of the empire's powerful electors, his claim needs to be taken seriously and this creates political chaos in the empire. So, Frederick, on the one hand is worried that Augustus III of Saxony is going to take this territory of Silesia right next to Prussia's borders, and on the other hand, is able to capitalize on a moment of great political instability. He takes advantage, and he seizes Silesia for himself. As an excuse, he refers to a centuries-old family claim to the territory that Few people anywhere view as legitimate. It's basically a bald excuse, but he also sweetens the pot. See, he's an elector, and he promises that if Maria Theresa formally hands Silesia over to Prussia, he will support her husband Francis's candidacy for emperor when it comes time to vote. Maria Theresa declines his offer, and Austria and Prussia are officially at war. Now, Frederick the Great's pretexts might be flimsy, but the value of this territory of Silesia is very clear. Not only is Silesia geographically valuable, it's also densely populated, with 1.5 million inhabitants, compared to the current Prussian population of 2.25 million in 1740. There's an established textile industry, while all of Prussia proper and most of Brandenburg have an agrarian economy. And in an age where coal-fired furnaces are just starting to become important for industry, Silesia's rich coal deposits are as valuable as early 20th century oil fields. If Frederick can pull this off, he'll nearly double Prussia's population weaken his Polish-Lithuanian-Saxon adversary Augustus, and increase Prussia's growing prestige inside the Holy Roman Empire. Like I said, the War of the Austrian Succession sees fighting in several theaters, and even in India, North America, and the Caribbean. Frederick's invasion of Austria kicks off a portion of this war called the First Silesian War. Yes, the War of the Austrian Succession gets so big that there are even names for some of the smaller wars that make it up. To understand how this war gets out of control, though, we should talk about the diplomatic situation in Europe right now. How do the different alliance systems work? What's the balance of power in 1740? Let's start in the east, where the Russian Tsardom is in a state of transition. Within a week of Charles VI passing, Empress Anna also dies, leaving her son Ivan VI in charge. But Ivan is just a baby, and in December of 1741, his cousin Elizabeth, the daughter of Peter the Great, will take power in a coup. Now, Russia is allied with Austria at this time, but number one, they're 
obviously dealing with some internal politics, and number two, even more importantly, they are in a war with Sweden at the time called the War of the Hats. So they never really get involved in the War of the Austrian Succession per se, and neither does Sweden. Now, if you're sitting on the Wikipedia page for the War of the Austrian Succession right now, and you saw Sweden and Russia in the list of combatants, scrub that image out of your mind. Besides fighting each other for several years, neither one contributes significantly to the conflict, except for the looming threat that Russia in particular might maybe, possibly, someday get involved. Moving west, we come to Poland, which, as I mentioned, is ruled by Augustus III, who is also the elector of Saxony. For now, he's going to stick to political opposition to Maria Theresa and diplomatic claims to the land in Silesia, but like several other powers, he'll eventually end up in the war. Charles Albert, the elector of Bavaria in southwestern Germany, who is posing a challenge in the election, well, he is in the same boat. We've already talked about Prussia in northeastern Germany and Austria in the southeast. Moving west, the French have already secretly backed Charles Albert of Bavaria's claim to the imperial title. They aren't involved militarily just yet because they're hoping for a political solution, but their military remains available should it become needed. And France's army is quite substantial. It's the biggest on the European continent, and while it's not quite as well-drilled as Prussia's, it's nonetheless a well-organized professional fighting force. Oh, and the French also have a burgeoning colonial empire. Spain is already an empire in decline at this point in history. For cultural reasons, Spanish colonial treasures have been squandered on material goods instead of invested in the economy. There's an idea that a real gentleman doesn't dirty his hands with business, so... Spain never benefits from her colonial empires in the long-term ways that other colonial powers do. That said, in 1740, Spain is still a force to be reckoned with, and will be for another century or so. And as we already discussed, Spain is now ruled by a Bourbon king, Philip V, so their foreign policy and French foreign policy are closely intertwined. In other words, they are making their military ready at this time. Britain, meanwhile, is another colonial power and is in a formal alliance with Austria. This puts them in a delicate position. On the one hand... The British hate getting involved in wars on the European continent. When they get in alliances with European powers, what they like to do is support those allies uh, with financial subsidies or with their navy. 
What they don't like to do is, uh, well, as we Americans say, put boots on the ground, right? They don't want to put boots on the ground in a European war. Ideally, they would just threaten to put a naval blockade on whatever powers are going to go to war with Austria. But there's a problem with that. See, at the moment, King George II is also the King of Hanover, a large statelet in northwest Germany that is adjacent to some Prussian lands. So... There's no way to get involved in this on the Austrian side with only the navy or only financial aid, which are Britain's normal weapons of choice, right? Any involvement on Britain's part risks a Prussian invasion of Hanover or a French invasion of Hanover, etc., etc. This means that the British army will need to be deployed, So at least for now, except for some diplomatic protests, Britain sits on its hands. There are other smaller players as well, but these are the major characters in the drama. Now, Frederick the Great's claim to Silesia opens the floodgates. Augustus of Saxony makes his own claim, right? Charles Albert of Bavaria, in addition to his claim to the title of emperor, well, now he tries to claim Bohemia and all of Upper Austria as his personal territory. France begins not just readying its military, but actively eyeing Austrian possessions in the Netherlands, while Spain does the same in northern Italy. With war looking more and more likely, other countries begin to arm up. The Dutch Republic has little to fear from the Austrian Netherlands, who are neighboring them. But it would be a different story if nearby France were to gobble up those territories and suddenly be neighbors to the Dutch. Along the same lines, the small kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia, positioned between France and the northern Italian states, fears any kind of encroachment from the Spanish and the French because they would be caught in the crossfire. This is why the war of the Austrian succession is so hard to talk about. There's no one common through line or theme. It's kind of like World War I that way. Each one of these countries is coming in with its own interests and objectives. And to some extent, that's obviously the case in any war. Right? No two countries' interests are literally aligned 100%. But that is magnified here. So let's simplify things a little. France, Spain... The Prussians and the other enemies of the Austrian Habsburg dynasty smell blood in the water. So what happens here is kind of like a feeding frenzy. One shark takes a bite, then another, and sooner or later, they're all coming in for the kill. 
Frederick the Great is the first leader to go beyond making a political claim. He's the first shark to bite. And on December 16, 1740, less than two months after the death of Charles VI, he crosses the frontier into Silesia with a force of 27,000 troops. Now, that might not seem like much to invade the mighty Austrian Empire with. The Austrian army has a paper strength of 150,000 men. Like I said, there are financial issues, so the standing army at this time is really more like 80,000, some sources say as little as 30,000, and they're spread out, defending not just against Frederick, but against potential threats from Saxony, France, or Spain, or the power that the Habsburgs are worried about most right now, Bavaria. So when Frederick crosses the frontier, his 27,000 men are only facing an Austrian garrison of around 8,000 men. And again, that number might be as little as 3,000. There are no great battles in this invasion. This is just a rout, for the most part. The Austrian garrison is unprepared for an assault in the dead of winter, and in January of 1741, Frederick enters the capital city of Breslau in triumph. It helps that the local population is mostly supportive. This is a majority Protestant territory, and the people still remember the Catholic persecutions of a few generations before. It's only natural that they prefer a Protestant leader to a Catholic one. Another reason Frederick is so incredibly successful is that the bulk of Austria's forces seem to have been deployed along the Bavarian frontier, since Duke Charles of Bavaria seemed like the real threat at this time. In his book, History of the Habsburg Empire, 19th century American historian John S.C. Abbott writes about the weeks leading up to the war. He says, quote, Maria Theresa immediately dispatched couriers to inform the northern powers of her accession to the crown, and troops were forwarded to the frontiers to prevent any hostile invasion from Bavaria. The Duke of Bavaria claimed the Austrian crown in virtue of the will of Ferdinand I, which, he affirmed, devised the crown to his daughters and their descendants in case of the failure of the male line. As the male line was now extinct, by this decree, the scepter would pass to the Duke of Bavaria. Charles VI had foreseen this claim, and endeavored to set it aside by the declaration that the clause referred to in the will of Ferdinand I had reference to legitimate heirs, not male merely, and that, consequently, it did not set aside female descendants. In proof of this, Maria Theresa had the will exhibited to all the leading officers of state, and to the foreign ambassadors. It appeared that legitimate heirs was the phrase, and now the question hinged upon the point, whether females were legitimate heirs. In some kingdoms of Europe they were, in others they were not. In Austria, the custom had been made variable. Here was a nicely balanced question, sufficiently momentous to divide Europe, and which might put all the armies of the continent in motion. 
There were also other claimants for the crown, but none who could present so plausible a plea as that of the Duke of Bavaria. Unquote. This idea that a female cannot inherit is a French concept known as Salic Law. And, like Abbott says, it applies in some German states and not in others. Incidentally, Salic Law is how the British will ultimately lose control of Hanover. When Queen Victoria takes the throne in Britain in the 1800s, Salic Law still applies in Hanover, and the small kingdom splits off and is ruled by the next male heir. And in this situation, in 1740-1741, because the Habsburg lands are spread out across so many different duchies and other small territories, Salic law may or may not apply, which opens the door to all kinds of legal arguments in each of those tiny territories. And for the time being... Charles of Bavaria and Augustus of Saxony stick to those legal arguments. They're trying to get land from Maria Theresa via diplomacy, and Charles of Bavaria even wants to become emperor, but in the legal way, by winning the election. So far, Frederick II of Prussia is the only person to resort to military force. And before anyone else jumps in, they're going to see how the Austrians respond to the Prussian incursion. Maria Theresa responds decisively. She immediately raises a new army under Field Marshal Wilhelm Reinhard von Neipperg. She's able to raise around 20,000 men, but it's a particularly cold, snowy winter and it takes until March for the army to assemble and supply itself. In late March, von Nyperg is able to march his army through a pass in the Sudeten Mountains, crossing north into Silesia and catching Frederick II off guard. Frederick isn't expecting a counterattack this soon, any more than the Austrians had been expecting an attack in the dead of winter, and he has his men spread out across the new frontier, repairing fortifications. In fact, Frederick himself finds out about the Austrian counterattack when some Austrian light cavalry come riding up towards him and his bodyguards who are inspecting one of these fortifications. Had these Austrian hussars captured Frederick right then and there, he never would have become known as the Great, and the war of the Austrian succession might have fizzled out. But Frederick and his bodyguards managed to make an escape, and Frederick immediately sends messengers to his scattered forces, ordering them to regroup. Meanwhile, von Nyperg miscalculates... He thinks that the Prussians will run from his army just as the Austrian garrisons had run from the Prussians a few months back. So, instead of pressing the attack while the Prussian forces are still divided, he sets up camp near a town called Mulvitz and lets his men take a couple of days to rest after their grueling march through the mountains. Unfortunately for the Austrians, this gives Frederick valuable time to concentrate his forces. Furthermore, 
now that Frederick is aware of the Austrian army, he has scouts constantly watching them, while von Nyperg has no idea that the Prussians are even massing a substantial force. On the morning of April 10th, 1741, Frederick's army arrives just north of the Austrian camp. The snow is falling hard enough that you can't see for more than a few hundred yards, and the Austrians are completely unaware of the Prussian presence. They're making breakfast around their campfires. And it is these campfires that allow the Prussians to observe them from a safe distance without being observed. The light is shining through the snow early on this morning. Now, Frederick II has been raised for military leadership, but at 28 years old, this is his first time personally leading an army in battle. His field marshal, a guy named von Schweren, urges an immediate attack on the Austrian camp. Frederick insists on drawing up his forces in a proper line of battle. His cavalry is outnumbered by the Austrian cavalry, but he outnumbers them in infantry and artillery, so a long line of battle makes sense. It will expose the enemy to a lot of firepower, but more importantly, Frederick does this because of his inexperience. He's falling back on Prussian military doctrine and preferring to fight a textbook battle. And the manual says that when you are preparing to fight a battle, you draw up your forces in an orderly formation, so that's what you do. And he does this without realizing that a quick charge into an unsuspecting enemy camp at dawn, out of a blizzard, well... That would end von Nyperg's campaign right here. And Frederick is also ignoring the advice of an experienced field marshal, which is a mistake he won't make again. Compounding these issues, the snow makes it hard to calculate distances, and a river to the Prussian right seems much farther away than it really is, so... Frederick deploys too many troops to his right to cover such a short distance, and a bunch of his infantry end up bunched behind a bend in the river and even off at a 90-degree angle to the main line where they're not going to be of much help. And deploying these troops takes a full 90 minutes, and during that time, the snow stops falling. And around 1.30 in the afternoon, Austrian sentries spot the Prussian army deployed less than half a mile from their camp. This gives von Nyperg time to form up his own troops. Outnumbered in infantry, he decides that rather than wait for the Prussian advance, he's going to attack with his superior cavalry. Now, Frederick, for his part, is well aware of his inferiority in cavalry numbers, so he uses a trick that the Swedish have already become famous for. He 
positions heavy infantry in between his cavalry lines and orders his cavalry to stand still and receive the charge, even as the rest of the Prussian infantry slowly advances. The idea is that the Austrian cavalry will run into this Prussian heavy infantry, this hidden infantry within the cavalry, they'll run into it unexpectedly and they will take heavy losses uh, to the muskets and bayonets and uh, this will win the day and Frederick even positions himself with the cavalry to personally take part in the action. But the Austrian cavalry does not attack head on. Instead, they swing out and attack from the flank, hitting the Prussian cavalry from the side and causing them to panic. Moreover, the way the infantry are formed up, they're prepared to fire towards the front. They're not ready for this. A lot of the Prussian cavalry simply run away, while in the confusion the infantry now, uh, they start uh, firing in all different directions, again, in panic, and they're wildly shooting at anything on horseback, and they're probably shooting as many of their own Prussian cavalry as they are shooting Austrian cavalry uh, at this moment. Frederick does his best to rally the troops, and he succeeds in stiffening his cavalry's resolve and at least slowing down that retreat and stopping the Austrian cavalry advance, essentially. But now he's in the thick of the fighting. And the worst thing that could possibly happen for the Prussians would be for their young king to be killed in this battle. And the veteran Prussian field marshal von Schwerin recognizes this, and he convinces Frederick to pull back, and around 4 p.m., Frederick flees the field with a few bodyguards. According to the stories, he narrowly escapes being shot a few times during his escape. Uh, regardless, this leaves von Schwerin in full command of the Prussian army. The Austrian cavalry peels off. They have been successfully repelled, but the Prussian cavalry has just been mauled. They're not going to be able to contribute anything anymore in this fight. So now it's time for the superbly trained, but not battle-tested, Prussian infantry to come into this fight. In his book, Frederick the Great, A Military History, American historian Dennis Showalter writes, quote, the Prussians moved forward, their bayonets glinting in the setting sun of a winter day. Their movements were less mechanical and more reflexive than they had been at the start of the fighting. But for these virgin soldiers, the endless hours of conditioning on the drill ground kept them moving to the barking of their officers and sergeants. The light field guns that had bravely stood their ground against the Austrian cavalry moved forward, manhandled by their crews to support Schwerin's attack first with round shot, and then, as the ranges closed, with canister. The Austrians watched like men hypnotized. Pre-war Prussian drill regulations were based on a four-rank firing line, two kneeling and two standing. Frederick, 
in the interests of enhancing firepower and instead ordered the troops invading Silesia to form three ranks. They had four months to get used to the new formation. The musketeers responded perfectly to their officers' commands, their volleys rolling from the flanks of each battalion to the center, then resuming again as if on the drill field. The increasing confusion endemic to firing on the move made little impression on Austrian battalions outshot, according to their commander, five rounds to two. Nyperg's infantry included large numbers of inexperienced men. Its fire discipline and its fire techniques alike were among the worst in Europe. Its volleys on the day of Mulvitz were slow, irregular, and above all, high. Romer's charge had failed to break the Prussians. Now their infantry was coming on like a flame-tipped wall. With or without orders, Austrian musketeers sought to increase their own rate of fire by simply dropping musket balls down the barrel without ramming. The resulting increase in noise and smoke may temporarily have raised Austrian morale, but Prussian spirits were lifted even higher when the reduced muzzle velocity of rounds so loaded inflicted superficial wounds, rather than the incapacitating ones normally characteristic of an 18th century musket at battle ranges. The Austrians grew so preoccupied with loading and firing that orders to advance went unheeded. As Prussian fire hit home, Nyperg's men instead sought security in masses, bunching 30 or 40 men deep. Battalions brought from the second line to fill the gaps behaved in the same way. Instead of the solid wall prescribed by doctrine, the Austrian line of battle soon resembled Tilly's at Breitenfeld. Clumps of men, bayonets pointing in all directions, with gaps between them wide enough for whole regiments of cavalry to pass unscathed. The cavalry of the Austrian right, ordered forward to check the Prussian advance, was equally intimidated by the Prussian musketry. Even when their commander turned his sword on his own recalcitrants, the Austrian troopers remained immobile. It was Nyperg's hard-tried infantry which moved first, one or two men, then a dozen or twenty, discovering urgent private business somewhere to the rear in defiance of threats and commands. Making a virtue of apparent necessity, Nyperg ordered a general retreat as night fell. Unquote. In terms of casualties, the Battle of Mulwitz is a draw. Each side suffers between four and 5,000 casualties, but it's a strategic victory for the Prussians, who push back the Austrians despite Frederick's tactical errors. More importantly, it's Frederick's first taste of real combat. And he acquits himself well, all things considered. This guy's going to be around for a long time, and he still has some lessons to learn, and he's learned a few things, and he's also demonstrated some things, right? He's shown that he has the courage to fight with his men and to rally them in a challenging situation, and he's shown that he has the wisdom to secure his own personal safety. His own drive for glory is not going to overcome good common sense and strategic thinking. On the learning front, well, he's learned the importance of experienced generals, and always in the future he works more closely with his commanders. And 
in response to the battle, he takes real concrete steps in improving his army's performance, particularly the cavalry. He establishes new cavalry drilling standards that are even more demanding than his father's. And unlike before, he eagerly gets up every morning himself to ride and to study and to hone his own skills. Following the battle, Frederick attends to a siege in nearby Brieg, and after defeating the small Austrian garrison there, his army and the Austrian army under Nyperg remain in a face-off on the frontier, with neither side moving to attack. The only fighting between Prussians and Austrians in this period is some light raiding and scouting action, so let's leave Frederick in Silesia and look at what's going on in the rest of the world. See, Prussia has just proven that the Austrians are not the feared powerhouse they appeared to be prior to the war. Now there's blood in the water, and the other sharks are circling. On May 28, 1741, Spain and Bavaria signed an agreement called the Treaty of Nymphenburg, where Spain agrees to support Charles of Bavaria's claim to the Habsburg lands in exchange for receiving Habsburg land in northern Italy. Bavarian troops crossed the Austrian frontier and set up camp along the Danube River, threatening the Austrian heartland. On June 5th, the French proclaimed their support for Prussia's seizure of Silesia. Later that month, Maria Theresa makes the little trip to Hungary we already talked about, and not only gets herself voted king, but raises another small army. She's going to need it. In July, France joins the Treaty of Nymphenburg, and French troops start trickling across the Rhine to join Charles of Bavaria's forces. Austria isn't entirely alone. While her Russian allies are too busy fighting the Swedish to render any aid, the British are wary of French power. France is a colonial rival, and already has the largest army in Europe. The last thing King George II wants is for the French to gain any more land or resources. At the same time, as we said, Britain doesn't want to get involved in a continental war on land. The Kingdom of Hanover is vulnerable to attack from Prussia. So the British chart an alternate course. But for now they deliver a large shipment of financial aid. This is enough money to fund a large army for several months. This is a generous gift. But, in fact, the British are also involved militarily in an indirect fashion. Since October of 1739, they've already been at war with Spain in a conflict called the War of Jenkins' Ear. And this is one of the ways where the War of the Austrian Succession really starts to look like a world war and not a general European war. Now, 
we're talking about colonial empires with huge navies and significant overseas territories, so there is fighting all over the place. The War of Jenkins' Ear has nothing to do with the Austrian succession at all. As I said, it has already been in full swing since October of 1739, more than a year before Frederick II's invasion of Austrian Silesia. This is a trade war, the outcome of ongoing disputes between the British and the Spanish with regard to American trade. Way back in 1713, at the end of the War of the Spanish Succession, the Spanish had made some concessions to the British as part of the peace treaty. Significantly, the British have an asiento from the Spanish crown. An asiento is a special trade privilege, and this particular asiento gives the British the right to ship 5,000 slaves per year to the New World, to Spanish colonies in the New World. Now, the slave industry is awful, but as it turns out, in this time and place, it's also not that profitable, which is probably why the Spanish were so willing to negotiate the asiento in the first place. But the British are all about trade, and they've already assigned the trade routes to the South Sea Company, one of Britain's several public-private overseas trade company partnerships. So, some enterprising merchants look for other ways to profit from these trade routes. Smuggling turns out to be pretty lucrative. See, most European countries at this time follow mercantilist trade policies, and under mercantilism there is a zero-sum view of trade. If your colonies are trading with another major power, that's not more commercial activity for your empire, that's your colonies cheating the motherland out of her rightful trade, even if those colonists are buying stuff that they can't buy from the mother country. In the early 18th century, Britain is starting to industrialize, while Spain, like most other countries, has yet to develop any mechanized industry. We've already talked about their particular problems with industrialization. But one of the biggest examples of this is that the British have developed the coke-fired blast furnace, which allows them to produce cast-iron products that are not only better quality than anything else in the world, but also cheaper. Now, let's say you're a Spanish colonist in Havana, and you want to buy a cast-iron tool. Can you just buy one from the British? No. You have to buy one from Spain, and this means one of two things. First, you could buy a lower-quality, more expensive Spanish-made tool. Or second, you could buy the genuine article, but only after it has first been imported from Britain to Spain, taxed, and then shipped again on a Spanish ship to the Americas. In other words, you are paying a huge markup for the sole benefit of the crown. So, 
British merchants figure out ways to sneak manufactured goods into Spanish colonies. They'll have one deck of slaves at the top of the ship and the lower decks packed with other goods. In some cases, they won't have any slaves on board at all, and if there are any Spanish ships nearby that might want to inspect them, some of the British sailors will dress up in blackface and ragged clothes and handcuffs and walk around on deck pretending to be slaves who are being let out for exercise. And if some Spanish ship captain looks at them through his spyglass... The whole thing looks like a legitimate slave ship. And no, the irony of using slave shipping as a quote-unquote legitimate cover for illicit trade is not lost on me. And obviously the Spanish get wise to this, and they commission some people to search incoming British ships. The Caribbean and South America are far away from Spain, and the naval squadrons are already busy, so the Spanish issue letters of marque instead. A letter of marque is an official commission given to someone who isn't a part of the military to perform a particular task. In this case, the letters of mark are given to independent ship captains whose job it is to search incoming British ships and seize any contraband on behalf of the Spanish crown, for which they will receive a generous share of the seizure. Of course, these people will have to be civilian captains with well-armed crews and experience in boarding and searching merchant vessels. In other words, we're talking about pirates. Uh, The Spanish commission a bunch of pirates to act as privateers in a force called the Garda Costa. And, uh, by the way, the Spanish are not the only people to do this (laughs) during the Age of Exploration and uh, the following periods. Uh, But... uh, The Spanish established this privateer force called the Garda Costa, and it seems to be pretty effective at deterring smuggling. Uh, Unfortunately, legitimate British shipping gets caught up in the mix, and there are a couple of unfortunate incidents where Garda Costa crews board British ships and display less than professional behavior. You might almost say that these guys are acting like pirates. In one notorious incident in 1731, Garda Costa members board a British merchant vessel called the Rebecca. When they can't find any contraband, they tie the ship's captain Robert Jenkins to the mast. One of the privateers cuts off Jenkins' ear, then throws it in his face and tells him to deliver it to King George, and to tell the king that the same thing will happen to him if he is caught smuggling. Now, like I said, this is only one of many incidents. It is not as if the British actually go to war just because one Spanish privateer cut one guy's ear off. The incident becomes memorable because Jenkins preserves the ear in a pickling jar, and 
Seven years later, in 1738, he's called before Parliament to testify, along with several other British merchants whose ships have been raided by Spanish privateers. Robert Walpole, the Prime Minister, has been pursuing a policy of peace and of avoiding conflict at all costs. This has put him in the crosshairs of many in the country, who want a more muscular posture towards the Spanish. Famously, Jenkins supposedly takes his ear along to the hearing and holds it up to present it to the members of Parliament, and the severed ear becomes a symbol of so-called Spanish abuses. This incident is so colorful that, despite it being a minor part of the big-picture story, historians still refer to the war as the War of Jenkins' Ear is most likely because that's easier to remember than something boring like the British-Spanish War of 1739. Incidentally, this war is not just about trade. There is also a border dispute between the British colony of Georgia and the Spanish colony of Florida. The last straw comes in 1739. The Spanish and the British have come to a settlement that requires the Spanish to reimburse British merchant captains for their losses. However, it also requires the South Sea Company to pay an indemnity to the Spanish crown for the goods they've smuggled. Despite being partially owned by the British government, which has agreed to this settlement, the South Sea Company refuses to pay the indemnity. So, Negotiations break down and the Spanish declare war. Now, the British have been to war with the Spanish in the Caribbean not that long ago in the War of the Spanish Succession, and while the British did pretty well for themselves in Europe in that war, they gained Gibraltar, they didn't have a ton of success in the tropics. Jamaica is the British home base in the region, and health conditions there are bad enough in this time period. But when you spend too much time in the jungle in the rainy season, or even just in your ship close offshore, you're going to get a lot of mosquitoes. And some of those mosquitoes carry yellow fever. And... In these days, people don't know that yellow fever is carried by mosquitoes, so they don't even take basic measures like putting up mosquito nets. Famously, in the War of the Spanish Succession, a British squadron of 20 ships had laid a blockade to the Spanish port of Portobello in modern-day Panama. During the blockade, more than 4,000 of the 4,750 British sailors in the squadron died of tropical disease. To avoid this, the British plan in the War of Jenkins' Ear is to act quickly and decisively. Move in, hit some Spanish targets, and if you can't take them quickly, run back to Jamaica, resupply, and try again next year when the rainy season's over. But don't sit around in the same place, right next to land, waiting for disease to set in. The first British commander to go into action in this war is Admiral Edward Vernon. Vernon has been one of the loudest voices in the British war party, and 
He is convinced that the Spanish military forces in the Americas are a paper tiger. And to be fair, they are. Their shore artillery are a century old or more, and the impressive fortifications don't have very many defenders. Not only that, a lot of the gunpowder they have in storage is wet and no longer useful. The fortifications themselves are generally in poor repair. The problems go on and on and on for the Spanish in the New World at this time. And Vernon once famously boasted that he could personally take Portobello with only six ships. So when war breaks out with the Spanish, the Admiralty gives him a six-ship squadron based out of Jamaica, and they tell him to go ahead and try. And sure enough, on November 20th, 1739, Vernon sails into Portobello Harbor. He intends to make a more general bombardment, but the winds push him towards one side of the harbor, and he ends up concentrating all of his fire on one tower at one end of the fortress. And this drives out all the Spanish defenders there, and he lands his marines, and he runs up the British colors. And the entire 300-man Spanish garrison surrenders. And at the cost of only 10 casualties, Vernon seizes the fort, sinks one Spanish merchant ship, and seizes three others. He spends three weeks there in Portobello, and he orders his men to destroy the fortifications and the port facilities and all the warehouses, all the infrastructure that is necessary for this to be a functioning port. And this is a big deal because Portobello is one of just a handful of New World ports where the Spanish treasure fleet stops off. And now this port is out of commission. When news arrives back in Britain in early 1740, the nation is seized with patriotic fervor. Multiple places in the UK, as well as the British colonies, are named after Portobello. George Washington's estate in Virginia is named Mount Vernon after Admiral Vernon. The song Rule Britannia is written during this time period. Against his own inclinations, Prime Minister Robert Walpole is forced to allow a broadening of the offensive. Destroying Portobello hurt the Spanish badly. But to really challenge Spanish dominance in South and Central America, you need to hit their primary trade hub, Havana. But Havana is too heavily defended to take without a full European-sized army. So what do you do? You go for the next best target. And the next best target is Cartagena in modern-day Colombia. This is the sole export point for gold from the Andes, and it's second only in Havana in importance to Spain's overseas empire. Destroy it, or better yet, capture it, and you strike a massive blow to Spain. The British know this, and they know that naval forces alone can't win this kind of fight, so to go along with Admiral Vernon, they raise an expeditionary land force of around 12,000 men. About 600 of these are Royal Marines, while 
2,400 are regular British Army forces. The remaining 3,600 are colonial regiments, marking the first time that American colonists in the British Empire fight as regular Army soldiers. Incidentally, this battle also marks the first time in history where British colonial subjects are referred to as Americans, rather than simply as British subjects. In fact, George Washington's older brother, Lawrence Washington, volunteers for a colonial marine regiment, and his stories about the war encouraged the young George Washington to pursue a military career. Anyway, there is no overall command to this invasion. Admiral Vernon commands the naval force of 29 ships of the line, almost 100 smaller ships of war, as well as a fleet of supply ships and troop transports. The ground troops themselves are commanded by Lord Charles Cathcart, and neither commander can order the other one around. This is just fine, though, because Cathcart is a veteran commander, and he and Vernon both agree on the same aggressive strategy. Unfortunately, Cathcart gets sick and dies while en route from England, and this leaves command to Lieutenant General Thomas Wentworth. Wentworth is an inexperienced commander who has never actually led troops in battle. So, much like the young Frederick the Great at the Battle of Mulvitz, he's going to fall back on training and doing what the military manuals dictate. Oh, and... Did I mention that the expedition is already behind schedule and short on supplies? The forces from England had been delayed three months because the Royal Navy had reorganized some ships to respond to Frederick's invasion of Austria. Basically, they were switching to a potential war footing here, so there were some delays. They fear a war with France if a more general European war breaks out, and as a matter of fact, there's even a French fleet patrolling in the Caribbean. Meanwhile, while the English-British uh, part of the expedition has been held up, the American contingent had arrived in Jamaica early, and nobody had bothered to set aside supplies for them, and they've been waiting for three months. So instead of arriving in Cartagena, well-supplied in December, months away from warm weather. The British Expeditionary Force arrives at Cartagena on March 9, 1741, with warm weather right around the corner. So, what are the Spanish defending with? Well, the city's defenses are manned by between 1,100 and 2,700 regular troops, along with a few hundred local militia and a few hundred more Native American archer volunteers. Uh, the total numbers are fuzzy, but it seems like they have between 3,000 and 5,000 defenders altogether. I mean, regardless, they are vastly outnumbered by this uh, British expeditionary force. But they are on the defensive, which gives them some advantages, and they do have some very strong defenses with numerous small, separate fortifications, shore guns, and six ships of the line to at least partially deter the British fleet. 
Most importantly, though, they have leadership. The Spanish forces are led by Admiral Blas de Letho, a seasoned commander who's one of the more colorful folks in our story. In his book, Disaster on the Spanish Main, American author Craig S. Chapman describes de Letho as follows, quote, The man looked as fierce as his reputation. Vice Admiral Don Blas de Letho y Olivarieta, the 48-year-old commander of the Galeona Satira Firme y Peru, had dropped body parts across the western Mediterranean during his 36-year career fighting for Spain. A leg at Malaga, an eye at Toulon, and an arm at Barcelona. His right arm was still attached, but hung uselessly at his side, its tendons and nerves severed by a musket ball. The Basque native first went to sea as a 12-year-old midshipman at the beginning of the War of Spanish Succession. By the age of 15, Blas de Letho had earned promotion to Ensign after being cited for bravery. Seven years later, he took command of a frigate and gained the distinction of being one of the few Spanish captains to have captured a British warship in battle. He nearly died from typhoid fever while commanding the fleet that captured Oran, Algeria. Later, when the Ottomans tried to retake the city, Blas de Letho led a successful defense against the besieging force. Not content with merely rebuffing the siege, he sailed after the Algerians, steered his ship into their home port, blasted their ramparts with his guns, and blew up the Algerian commander's flagship. Unquote. Well, if you have to lead a desperate defense of a city, I would suggest that somebody with that kind of backbone is a good person to do that. Now, Blas de Letho is aware that he can't hold out forever. Instead, he adopts a layered defense, determined to fight off the British until the rainy season comes in May, which brings disease. And he's well-positioned to do this. The city of Cartagena is located on the north coast of South America, and the coastline there is actually uh, vertical if you're looking at the map. It runs roughly north to south, facing westwards across the Caribbean towards Central America. Uh, the city is actually bounded by the Caribbean Sea to the northwest, but the surf and rough conditions make that side unapproachable. You can't really land an army there. Instead, you have to go a little further south and get into Cartagena Harbor, but that is protected by a large fortified island called La Bamba. The channel to the north of the island is too shallow for a deep-drafted ocean-going vessel to pass through. So really, the only viable approach to the city is through the southern channel, and the Spanish have blocked that channel with a chain which stretches from La Bamba to a small fort at the south end of the channel called San Jose. To even get to the main fortifications, the British attack force will first have to land on La Bamba, destroy the fortress, and drop the end of the chain into the channel. But... When Wentworth's land forces are dropped off, rather than launch an immediate attack, he has them start digging in. Remember, we are dealing with a rookie who's deferring to the military manual, and 
The manual says what you're supposed to do when besieging in enemy fortification. You dig in. But what Wentworth doesn't understand, even though Vernon keeps warning him, is that every day spent hanging around in the tropics, every day spent on a ship maintaining a blockade, is another day where you might catch one of those nasty tropical diseases we talked about, and the rainy season is getting closer and the weather is getting warmer. So, ten days after arriving at Cartagena on March 19th, Vernon decides to take action on his own. He sends a detachment of 500 marines to assault the Tower of Baradero on the southern side of the channel. Lawrence Washington participates in this mission and is given a commendation for bravery by Vernon himself. On the 24th, Vernon sends a second attack, which completely repels the Spanish and allows British siege engineers to build a battery, a tower where you can mount cannons capable of firing across the channel at La Bamba. When the cannons breach the Spanish fort at the north side of the channel, Wentworth finally goes into action and sends in 500 grenadiers to clear out the Spanish defenders, who quickly retreat without putting up much of a fight. Now, I'm not going to deliver a blow-by-blow account of the entire battle. Uh, It's a fairly protracted siege. There's a naval battle in the channel, uh, which, remember, is barely wide enough for a single ship to pass through at a time, so the Spanish are able to uh, negate the superior British numbers to some extent. Uh, Eventually, they scuttle some ships to block the channel temporarily, which forces a delay while the British clear the debris. And it's not until April 5th that the British actually fully control the channel, and it takes them a week beyond that to redeploy their force across the inner harbor to the landward side, where there is only one more obstacle between them and the city proper, that is the Fort of San Lazar. Meanwhile, Vernon sends a message back to Britain, saying that Cartagena has almost fallen, The government mints coins commemorating the event, and unfortunately for Admiral Vernon, after the battle, uh, collectors who have started gathering the coins are upset because they feel they've been lied to. This is false advertising. And, well, Vernon has Wentworth to thank for this failure, because once again, uh, as soon as they land on the mainland, instead of attacking this Spanish fort right away, he has his troops dig in again. Some of Wentworth's American soldiers take a hill near the fortress uh, where they are supposed to build a new battery to fire on San Lazar. But the invasion force's chief engineer was killed during the operation at the mouth of the harbor, and his subordinates aren't capable of doing the job without him. Uh, Moreover, Wentworth dithers over whether or not to take advantage of this hill to begin with, Uh, Since the Americans had taken it without orders, which he considers a major breach of discipline, uh, but that just means more delay. By now, over 500 British soldiers are dead from combat or disease, and another 2,000 or so are ill. That's nearly a quarter of the land force altogether. So things are already getting critical. 
Vernon pushes for an immediate assault on San Lazar with ladders, but Wentworth again continues to dither until dawn of April 20th. This gives Blas de Letho's defenders time to shore up the walls of the fortress, uh, and Wentworth eventually, on April 20th, orders an attack, and he sends his British regulars in under cover of the pre-dawn darkness uh, to be followed by a party of Americans carrying ladders, and then more regulars. But the regulars in the front take heavier-than-expected casualties, so very few of them actually get to the fortress, and then the Americans coming behind, a lot of them drop their ladders and either A, run away, or B, pick up a dropped musket and ammo from a dead guy and join the fight. And this means that the ladders, only a few of them get to the wall, and they only kind of trickle in, and as it turns out, they're almost 10 feet too short anyway. <laughs> and uh, needless to say, the attack fails. As the attack begins to falter, the Spanish actually fix bayonets and counterattack, driving the British survivors all the way back to their ships. The entire assault is a fiasco, and nearly 500 more British men are lost. At this point, the combat casualties aren't even the main problem. Yellow fever has reduced Wentworth's total fighting force to only around 3,000 men. With no way to press forward, the expeditionary force retreats back to Jamaica. Thanks to disease and Blas de Letho's defenders, Cartagena remains in Spanish hands, and the Spanish Empire in the Americas remains secure for another hundred years. By the way, by the time all is said and done, nine out of ten participants in the British Expeditionary Force will succumb to disease. By this point, in the middle of 1741, both Spain and Britain are focused far more on events in Europe, and they have fewer resources to commit to fighting in the colonies. This isn't to say that there's no more action there. There is border fighting between Florida and Georgia throughout the war, but there's never a major decisive change of territory. Uh, the British also send a squadron called the Anson Expedition on a trip all the way around South America to the Pacific. Commodore George Anson sails to Acapulco on the Pacific coast of modern-day Mexico, only to find out that he's just missed the Manila Galleon, the annual treasure ship sent from the Philippines to Mexico, where it is offloaded in Acapulco and sent to the Caribbean coast by land and then shipped back to Europe. Needless to say, capturing this Manila galleon would be a major win for the British. And rather than give up, Anson sails all the way to China, encountering a storm on the way where some of his ships are damaged. And he goes and spends the rest of the year in Canton, uh, having his ships repaired, and then he goes 
back out to the Philippines in time to capture the Manila Galleon on its way out, and then returns to Europe via the Indian Ocean with the captured ship, having circumnavigated the globe in the course of his mission. Anson also loses five out of his six original ships and more than 90% of his men during the voyage. Even so, despite this action, 1741 to 1742 is when most historians stop talking about the War of Jenkins' Ear as a discrete war and start talking about it as part of the War of Austrian Succession. Most of Spain's efforts in the War of the Austrian Succession are bound up in northern Italy. Now, I'm not going to spend much time talking about this later on, but I just want to briefly mention that there's an entire theater of war in northern Italy. At this time, the Spanish crown also controls the Kingdom of Naples in southern Italy, so it makes sense to try and collect some of those low-hanging Habsburg lands in the northern part of the boot. Moreover, France and the Republic of Genoa are both friendly, so Spanish troops can actually get to Italy by land. They don't have to go by sea across the Mediterranean. But northern Italy is a notoriously difficult area to fight. It's mountainous, it's full of mountain passes that serve as choke points, and this point, the politics in the area involve a bunch of city-states, independent duchies, and small statelets uh, that are clients to larger kingdoms. It's a real mess, and you almost have to be a specialist to really understand Italian politics during this period. Uh, suffice it to say that between the geography and the politics, the Spanish have a hard time conquering anything here. And when they finally do, later in the war the Austrians are able to conquer it all back. So, while the War of the Austrian Succession has huge historical consequences, it doesn't really matter that much for Italy, except for the poor Italians who have to deal with a major war in their backyards. Let's get back to the main theater of war now where Frederick the Great is sitting in Silesia with his army in the middle of 1741. In June, he signs the Treaty of Nymphenburg, joining with France and Spain to formally support Charles Albert of Bavaria as the new Holy Roman Emperor. The anti-Habsburg League is further bolstered when Augustus of Saxony signs in September. The small kingdom of Savoy-Sardinia also signs the treaty. The anti-Austrian alliance isn't just growing on paper. They are having military successes. By mid-September, a joint Franco-Bavarian force has conquered Linz, a major Austrian city not too far west of the capital. A month later, they are mere miles from Vienna. At the same time, Augustus of Saxony has gone and invaded Bohemia, Maria Theresa's cause is looking more and more hopeless by the day. But the anti-Habsburg coalition soon become victims of their own success. 
Augustus of Saxony's move into Bohemia upsets everybody else. See, Bohemia is northwest of Austria, northeast of Bavaria, southeast of Saxony, and southwest of Frederick's position in Silesia. It's literally right in the middle of the four imperial powers that are currently involved in the war. Charles Albert of Bavaria doesn't want the Saxons to move into Bohemia because he wants Bohemia for himself. So, Charles Albert abandons any attempt to attack Vienna and instead marches straight to Bohemia to take as much land as he can. The French happily go along. They want Austria weakened, and they would love to see a non-Austrian Holy Roman Emperor, but that will do them little good if Bavaria actually conquers all of Austria. It will simply mean a new, more powerful rival. So, the diversion to Bohemia is a godsend for the French. Now, Frederick would also like to take Bohemia, but if he did, he'd be overextended. At the same time, he would rather the Austrians keep it than have it go to Augustus of Saxony, because remember, Augustus's Polish and Lithuanian lands completely surround Frederick to the east. He doesn't want Augustus to gain one more inch of land around his border. At the same time, he fears Charles of Bavaria as much as the French do. If Charles seizes too much Habsburg land and then becomes emperor, what's to stop him from taking Silesia back from Frederick? He could even call it a punitive expedition. So, Frederick does the logical thing, and after some arm-twisting by the British, who don't want any French gains on the continent, he reaches out to the Austrians to make peace. Maria Theresa doesn't want to give away Silesia. She really, really doesn't want to give away Silesia. But she also recognizes that Austria is in an untenable position. So, she agrees to a temporary ceasefire, while diplomats work out the specifics of a peace agreement via back channels. This gives her the freedom to withdraw von Nyperg's army from Silesia and deploy it a few hundred miles west to defend Bohemia. But, importantly, the ceasefire is meant to be secret. Frederick doesn't want his allies to know that he's betraying them and concluding a separate peace. And as you might expect, this tentative peace agreement doesn't last for long. Despite Prussia holding back its armies, a combined Saxon-Bavarian-French army captures Prague, the capital of Bohemia, on November 26, 1741. And... Charles Albert of Bavaria is declared king of Bohemia on December 5th, giving him control of Bohemia's crucial electoral vote. But the Austrians aren't done quite yet. Aided by British financing, Maria Theresa has managed to raise still more armies, and these armies have retaken the land that the Bavarians and French had seized in Austria proper. And now... In the winter of 1741-1742, while Charles Albert's armies are all up in Bohemia, 
the Austrians are pushing into Bavaria, his homeland. In a bit of historical irony, Charles Albert is elected and crowned Emperor Charles VII on January 24, 1742, the same day that Austrian forces storm his capital city of Munich. Meanwhile, Maria Theresa has decided that maybe she doesn't need peace with Frederick after all. So, Austrian diplomats have started leaking information about the supposedly secret Austro-Prussian peace agreement. This makes Frederick look like a bad ally, just as the new Emperor Charles VII reaches the height of his power. So, Frederick decides to be a good ally, and he invades southern Bohemia, which is still controlled by the Austrians, in late December of 1741. This blocks the Austrians from sending forces to Prague, but it also adds a little bit to Prussia's share of the land grab. Frederick pushes further south into Moravia, the territory south of Bohemia and Silesia and north of Austria proper. He does this with the aid of a Saxon force, which eventually has to turn back on March 30th because they're out of supplies. The Saxons first retreat to Prague, then withdraw from Bohemia altogether. The French and Bavarians sit back in Prague with the French unwilling to advance. They have achieved their goal of weakening Austria, and they have no interest in making the new Bavarian emperor even more powerful. Frederick seems to have rejoined the war at just the wrong time, and now his army is isolated, his supply lines are overextended, and he's far enough into Austrian territory that his supplies aren't just subject to the usual occasional cavalry raids, they are also threatened by local guerrillas. So he loots the local area, and moves back north into Bohemia to the town of Krudim, which shortens his supply lines, and it moves him closer to his Bavarian allies in Prague. At this point, Frederick becomes aware of a new threat. Unbeknownst to him, Maria Theresa has raised, once again, yet another army, a force of 28,000 men, led by her brother-in-law, Charles of Lorraine. It's controversial whether this force is sent north to strike at Prague or to hit Frederick's army first because it's kind of in the way. But either way, Frederick decides to divide his army and march north towards Prague. Again, this is controversial. Is he retreating or is he getting closer to Prague to make sure he can block the Austrian army in case they attempt to bypass him? At any rate, Frederick splits his army, which is comparable to the Austrian force at around 28,000 men, and he personally leads 10,000 infantry as a forward unit, while leaving the main army of 18,000 under the command of Field Marshal Leopold Max, Prince of Anhalt-Dessau, known affectionately as the Old Dessauer. Frederick believes that he's days ahead of the Austrians, and he doesn't want to overexhaust his troops, so the army moves at a relaxed pace. Unfortunately for Frederick, 
Charles of Lorraine is driving his Austrians north at a breakneck pace. On May 15th, as he's passing south of the village of Chotizitz in central Bohemia, Frederick notices a small encampment of Austrian light cavalry. But they seem to just be scouts, so he pays them no mind. A day later, as he's following behind, Leopold Max makes a quick count of the Austrian tents in the area and realizes that this is an advance unit of the full Austrian army. In this position, the Austrians could possibly get between him and Frederick. Leopold immediately pushes his men to march at double time and sends riders ahead to Frederick to tell him that the Austrians are here and we need to get our entire army back together. The messengers arrive in Frederick's camp during the night, and he breaks camp at 5 a.m. on the morning of the 17th to hurry back south to Leopold's aid. Leopold has encamped his army just outside of Chotizitz and doesn't try to catch up to Frederick before fighting. The Austrians are too close, and he doesn't want to get caught out on the road. As a matter of fact, the Austrian battle lines are already starting to form up at dawn. Leopold deploys his men just south of the village of Chotizitz, with their backs to the village. Their left flank is anchored by a stream, and their right flank is anchored by a large pond. It's a flat, open area, and the army forms up in a standard formation with the infantry across the center and cavalry guarding both flanks. Now, on Leopold's left flank, the infantry and cavalry are right next to each other, right up at the edge of the stream. But on the right flank, he leaves a wide gap. The cavalry are way out to the right with their backs to the pond that we mentioned, but in the gap, There are no troops. There is instead a wide ridge. And Leopold is intentionally leaving this ridge open so that when Frederick's infantry arrive, they will have somewhere to deploy. Charles of Lorraine forms up his army in a similar formation, but without the gap. Remember, his Austrians here on the scene right now outnumber Leopold's Prussians by 28,000 to 18,000. Leopold has no intention of attacking, and instead he sits back, waiting for the Austrians to come to him. At 7 a.m., the Austrians do just that. Their cannons firing and their infantry marching in disciplined lines across the open field as the Prussian artillery return fire. Right around this time, Frederick arrives, and his scouts inform him that the Austrians are already attacking. Now he has to make a choice. As it happens, his army is arriving behind the long ridge that marks the gap in the Prussian lines. If he marches his army over the ridge right away and has them form up, they won't be able to deploy in time to meet the Austrian advance in proper formation. On the other hand, the ridge is concealing them from Austrian eyes. 
if he can form up his infantry behind the ridge and have them advance over the top in good formation, they'll be in a much better position. As his infantry is assembling, Frederick takes over full command of the combined army. Remembering what happened to his stationary cavalry at Mulvitz, he orders the cavalry on the Prussian right, uh, the ones in front of the pond, to charge the cavalry on the Austrian left. The Austrian cavalry countercharges, and both sides are caught in a bloody melee on the side of the battlefield. By around 8.30 a.m., the Austrians are uncomfortably close to the village of Chodositz, and Frederick's infantry still aren't deployed. Leopold Max still commands the Prussian infantry in the center, and he orders them to countercharge. Right, this countercharge against superior numbers seems to be designed to slow down the Austrians rather than to actually turn them back. At this point, Leopold is buying time for Frederick's infantry to enter the battle. But by 9 a.m., the Prussians are pushed back into the village of Chotositz itself. Austrian soldiers set fire to some of the buildings, creating a wall of flame that sweeps north through the village. But instead of terrifying Leopold's infantry into retreat, the smoke and flame provide cover for them to redeploy in good order behind the village, while Austrian soldiers are blinded and temporarily unable to pursue them. As for the cavalry, Dennis Showalter writes, beginning with Lieutenant General von Buddenbrock, commander of the cavalry on the Prussian right flank. He writes, quote, Von Buddenbrock put four cuirassier regiments in the first wave and supported them with two regiments of dragoons. This time, the Prussian troopers got in their blow first, riding over and scattering the Austrians in front of them. But Buddenbrock, instead of following up in the success of his cuirassiers, halted them in order to reorganize. The dragoons in his second line lost their way and rode into the fire of the advancing Austrian infantry. Once again, Prussian horsemen were standing still when the rallied and reinforced Austrians counterattacked, cuirassiers and dragoons in the front, hussars enveloping the Prussians' flanks. The results were predictable. By 9.30 a.m., Budenbrock's troopers were out of the action, and most of them on their way to the rear. The Prussian left-flank cavalry had not been idle, but in this sector their zeal exceeded their tactical skill. As the Austrian center and right advanced, three regiments of cuirassiers charged. Not only did they cut their way right through the Austrians in their sector, elements of the strike force even found themselves in the rear of the entire Austrian army. But the opportunity proved ephemeral to the weakened, disorganized Prussians. Instead of attacking the enemy infantry, troops and squadrons sought the best possible way back to their own side of the field. Unquote. In the center, infantry fighting continues hot and heavy in the village, with both sides becoming exhausted over the course of the next hour. It's not until 10.30 a.m. that Frederick has finally managed to fully deploy his infantry, but when they come marching over the ridge, 
all of them looking fresh, marching in tight formation. It frightens the Austrians, and they're forced to fall back somewhat and redeploy some of their regiments to their left flank to meet the charge. They end up surrounded on three sides, and fighting continues through the morning. But the Austrian infantry never breaks, and with both sides' cavalry effectively out of the action, it's becoming a battle of attrition. Around noon, Charles of Lorraine orders a general retreat. The Austrians fall back in good order, even managing to salvage all but a couple of their artillery pieces. Meanwhile, Frederick is unable to pursue them and follow up on the victory. While his cavalry have obviously improved since Mulvitz, they're in disarray right now, and they're in no condition to be pursuing. Instead, Frederick settles for pushing the Austrians back and badly mauling their army. Truth be told, his own army also needs some time to recover. While the Austrians suffered around 6,500 casualties in the battle, the Prussians have taken around 5,000 casualties of their own. The win is a narrow one, but it doesn't happen in a vacuum. A week later, on May 24, 1742, another Austrian army loses a major battle to the French. Something needs to give, and while the Prussians are somewhat weakened, at least for the moment, France remains a major threat to the Empire. So, Maria Theresa and Frederick enter into peace negotiations, brokered by the British once again. At first, Maria Theresa still refuses to give Silesia to the Prussians, even if it means the end of peace talks. But the British government is fixated on the French threat. They're not subsidizing Maria Theresa to fight the Prussians, and they threaten to withdraw financial support if she doesn't make peace. In June and July of 1742, Prussia and Austria sign a pair of peace treaties, bringing an end to the First Silesian War. In these treaties, Austria cedes most of Silesia to Prussia, except for the southernmost bit of it. In exchange, Frederick agrees to take on some of Austria's debts because lands in Silesia had been used as collateral on those debts. He also promises to remain neutral for the remainder of the War of Austrian Succession. Also in July of 1742, Augustus of Saxony makes peace with Maria Theresa. His treasury is tapped out. He's unable to continue fighting, and while he still doesn't like the Habsburgs, what he likes even less is the idea of the French gaining too much influence in German lands. Despite Frederick's pledge of neutrality, neither side expects this peace treaty to last indefinitely. Maria Theresa has every intention of getting Silesia back, once she's dealt with the French, the Spanish, and Charles of Bavaria, the new Emperor Charles VII. Meanwhile, Frederick knows that he's playing with fire. He needs to build up his army again, quickly. He needs to build it up even stronger and be ready to take advantage of any new developments. He's also damaged his diplomatic reputation. 
Remember, he's supposed to be a part of this anti-Austrian alliance, but now he's gone and signed a separate peace, which angers the French, Bavarians, and Spanish. Through the rest of 1742, Maria Theresa's armies are able to make substantial gains, and after a hard-fought siege, Habsburg forces retake Prague in September. After having retaken Bohemia, the campaign of 1743 consists mostly of a string of Austrian victories. The British have now committed ground troops, both from Great Britain itself and from George II's Kingdom of Hanover. In June, an allied British Hanoverian Austrian force defeats a superior French force, stymieing French efforts near the Rhine in the Battle of Dettingen. This battle doesn't inflict huge losses on the French army, they remain mostly intact, and the main thing that the Battle of Dettingen is famous for is that it's the last time to date that a British monarch personally commands an army in the field. But thanks to the French withdrawal, Maria Theresa now controls almost all her old empire, except for what Frederick took from her, and... Charles VII's title of emperor is looking more and more empty. Things have also taken a positive turn for the Austrians in northern Italy. In exchange for some land from the Austrians and some money from Great Britain, the small kingdom of Sardinia-Piedmont abandons the French and Spanish too, and instead commits 40,000 troops to Maria Theresa's cause. This helps stabilize the situation in northern Italy, and it's a big part of the reason the Spanish aren't able to solidify any gains there. By the end of 1743, things are actually looking pretty good for Maria Theresa, the now 26-year-old Austrian Archduchess, and the last scion of the Habsburg dynasty. But things aren't always as they appear. The French and Spanish have found a rival claimant to the British throne and are planning to send him to the British Isles to start some mischief and distract Austria's British allies. And sooner or later, Frederick II of Prussia is going to go to war again. He isn't called the Great yet, but he will be. In the face of this adversity, Maria Theresa will have to fight harder than ever to retain her lands and her heritage. She'll also be faced with the monumental task of getting rid of Charles Albert of Bavaria, now Charles VII, once and for all. We'll talk about that and more in Part 2 of Prussian Roulette. Hello again. It's me, Dan. This is a friendly reminder that if you're only listening to the audio podcast, you're not getting all of my content. I also have a Patreon channel called Dan's War College. Each month, I break down a historical battle, weapon, or tactic and explain how it works. This is a video series with maps, graphics, and other helpful visual aids, and you can get it all for just $5 a month. We've done 10 episodes so far, 
and some of these have even been patron requests, because I do take requests. You can find the link to the Patreon channel in the episode description. And if you're on the fence, episode 5 of Dan's War College is currently publicly available, so you can check that one out and get a taste for what the channel is like. Of course, not everybody wants to spend $5 a month for a monthly video, and who can blame you? There are so many channels and subscription services out there that it's just impossible to sign up for all of them. But if you still want to support the show, you can share it with your friends or post a link on social media. Shows like this grow by word of mouth. And if the channel's growth is any indication, you guys are great advertisers. Thanks so much, and please keep it up. And if your podcast service lets you leave a review, please do so. If you want to follow Relevant History on social media, you can find links in the description for that as well. Or just go to Twitter and find at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, Podcast. If you want to send me an email, you can write to dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, Podcast at gmail.com. Tell me what you liked, or if you think I got something wrong, tell me that too. You can also visit the show's website at dantollerpodcast.com. Once again, that's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks for listening.